Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell, recorded March 4th, 2011. Ice, ice, baby. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Hover.com. Hover is domain name registration and management that's simple. For 10% off your new domain, go to twill.hover.com and buy FreshBooks. FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look professional. Get started with a free package at freshbooks.com. Hi, folks. This is Denise Howell, and you've tuned in to episode 101 of This Week in Law. Really thrilled to have you with us today and thrilled to have our guests, too, especially Phil Gomes who is a senior VP with Edelman Digital. Hi, Phil. Howdy. Pleasure to be here. Long-time listener, first-time participant. Yes. Long-time friend. Great to have you on the show. And uh, also, Jay, who uh, is... I'm not, I'm, Jay, should I use your last name or no? I'm sorry, are you mute? Not hearing Jay. Hello? There we go. Oh, I'm sorry. I uh, I accidentally sat on the mute button. Yeah, that happens. Um, if we don't want his last name on there, you should let me know now, and I can take it off the lower third. Yes. No, that's okay. fine. That's fine. Okay, so we've got Jay Watkins with us, who is an IT support specialist from the greater Philadelphia area, and uh, we're thrilled to have Jay on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. This is excellent. Cool, cool. And uh, also with us is Evan Brown from Hinshaw and Culbertson in Chicago, Illinois, and internetcases.com. Hi, Evan. Hey, how's it going? It's great to be here. Great to be here with you all. And I, I just want to take a moment to say how excited I am to have representatives of Phil's profession, the public relations profession, and Jay's, the IT support professional profession. Um, on our show with us and just give you guys a formal thanks on behalf of Evan, myself, and all lawyers similarly situated for keeping us gainfully employed when we are not on Twill. So we really appreciate that <laughs> because uh, I, in all seriousness, so much of uh, my work over the last several years has emanated from the sort of tension and dance that goes on within corporations and other organizations uh, between the suggestions of the PR professionals that they work with and the needs of the IT support people that they work with. And also the fact that because of all of our information technology today, every single person within an organization has a voice outside the organization, it seems like. So um, I am anxious to explore all that with you guys on the show today. And uh, in fact, uh, I wanted to mention, um, I just noticed right before the show, I thought it was pretty funny that a really, really big law firm um, in the United States called Gibson Dunn has a new IT and data privacy group where I just thought it was interesting, Evan, you uh, tell me if you agree, that they have lumped so many of these issues together under one umbrella 
uh, as far as the services that this law firm provides. And they include everything from, you know, cybersecurity and compliance to all of the nervousness that corporations experience around social media, you know, and, and all of that is lumped under the same umbrella. So we're going to do the same thing in the show today, I think. Uh, or talk about why we shouldn't do that. Um, and Phil, maybe uh, maybe with that in mind, I should uh, kick it to you first um, and just sure. have you give kind of a big picture overview of um, the way in which uh, the law crops up in your duties at Edelman and your work with clients. Oh, sure. And, uh, and I should disclose that you know, I'm not a lawyer by by training mm-hmm. though I do have a strong interest in such matters you know I, if I when I think about the things that ring my phone the most um, it really it really centers on employee policies and online behavior and you know they're they're you know, there's often, you know, you'd mentioned sort of a, a dance between, you know, lawyers and PR professionals and IT folks. And what we often find is, you know, when we start an assignment, it's usually been most productive that uh, everybody with a stake in that communication has, is, is around the table. So it's been lawyers, CIOs, HR, IR, uh, public relations. And essentially, you know, we we air out everybody's, um, you know, concerns perhaps with online community engagement, then whittle it down to uh, some kind of policy that balances um, the uh, attention and transparency that online communities demand and deserve. And, you know, the corporate communications needs and the reputation management needs of an organization. Um, You know, very obviously, you know, some of this has to be discussed in terms of, um, you know, I'd imagine with regard to law, I guess we're going to be talking a little bit later about the um, the uh, the labor issue with American Medical Response. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, I think that's been an incredibly important case in terms of where a uh, a company's ideas a company's ideas of online behavior, you know, sort of end and somebody's off the clock behavior begins and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it, it's. What we found is that, you know, it used to be that social media policies, I mean, some of them that I've seen, of course, a lot of them are published, but, you know, focusing on it the way I do, I often um, you know, see some that aren't published. And, you know, it, there's been a, a maturation process over the past several years where, you know, the, fir- the some of the first policies I saw were something along the lines of this. It was like one sheet and it said, these are five names. Are you one of these five names? And we don't want you talking online. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that sort of way on the other on the other extreme. And then there are ones that um, you know famously some organizations have had um, online policies that are like two words. You know, be smart. Right. Which is hardly um, enough information to go on. So um, you know, I, I think what it, what what it really does come down to is that. Um, and and I think where where PR folks and lawyers you know try to find that glue logic in in the middle is this notion that um, um, you know the 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 PR person the communications to person person wants to of course communicate and be and be and achieve that as broadly as possible whereas you know um, very often in the legal profession it's in the uh, realm of risk mitigation right um, so. Very often, to become you know, you go back and forth, back and forth, and then it's almost like boiling it in a crucible. The absolute truth, at least for that organization, comes out at the end of that process. 
Right. And I think you make a really good point there that it's not the same um, from organization to organization. It really comes down to what their um, corporate values are and, and what the uh, the vision is of the people at the top and, and, you know, where they decide to make um, trade-offs because you gain so much from being open in some ways and yet, you know, you lose perhaps things in other ways. I'm sure um, you try and navigate the water so that, you know, it's a win-win all around. And, and, and I'd, also, I'd also have to say that, that the best policies make a distinction between, you know, these are, these are the rules that we expect you to abide by as an employee of this company, you know, narrowly drawn. And mm-hmm. these are, and, and then that's sort of bucketed in one set. And then the other set is, these are recommendations for what it really takes to be a good online citizen, right? And I think those mm-hmm. have to be two separate discussions, right? Um, because I, I think if... I think if tenets of online citizenship are discussed, you know, discussed, you know, um, dogmatically and prescriptively within the uh, the notion of what it, you know, uh, what policies you sign on to be an employee, it starts to get pretty dicey, and it starts to really, um, it starts to really infringe on somebody's somebody's freedom of speech. So the two have to be discussed, I think, as separate discussions, but delivered in sort of the same uh, the same policy or the same learning or, or the same learning instrument. Right. And, and I just, you know, I'm so grateful and I'm not sure what I would have done if my life just hadn't serendipitously gone the direction that it did. But uh, in about 2006, I became my own boss. And that's about when my social media, you know, beyond blogging, which you could argue is a form of social media, but, um, you know, use of Facebook and various other um, ways in which we express our, our thoughts online. I think um, Twitter just came into being in 06, right? Right, right, so, right, right. So, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that I never had to really, you know, as I increased my usage of those tools, never really had to deal with someone looking over my shoulder and uh, and judging whether I should say that to the ex- except for to the extent that you know I have to be careful. I still represent clients. I'm certainly not going to talk about their business online. Um, so I guess it's the same sort of a calculus that goes on for people who are employees within companies. But but let's talk to Jay, who you know today we're thrilled to have him on the show. I was uh, gone last week and casting about for uh, folks who were interested in coming on the show with us this week. And Jay was happy enough to volunteer on uh, Twitter. And I'm so glad that he did and glad to have him because, you know, you're sort of a a showcase of this issue that we're talking about. You know, you have um, an important role in an organization. You uh, have your own various social media presences, and I'm sure you're used to um, helping people in your organization negotiate theirs, but you've got to negotiate your own too. Do you want to talk about that for just a moment before we jump into our stories? Certainly. Um, One of the things I try to do with regards to social media is keep the two separate. One of the most important parts you can understand is that no matter what you put on Facebook or what you put on Twitter, anyone in the world can possibly see that. And you, I really don't understand how everything I put online can be interpreted. So I try not to mix the two, and I try to keep things at a positive level. If I'm if I'm upset or if you know I have a funny story about someone, I really don't put that online. I try to make it helpful at the very least. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Evan, Evan gave me a funny comment yesterday because I was wandering around Target and found um, Gordon from the Thomas the Tank Engine series sitting atop the display of KY Jelly and uh, <laughs> snapped a picture and, and threw it up on, uh, on Flickr because and then my Flickr feed goes everywhere uh, because it was darn funny to me. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, if I, if I were an employee within an organization, I would have to think twice about doing things like that. And I, I mean, I think I would have to, but some people don't. Um, let's, uh, let's jump into talking about someone who um, was not being so, quite so humorous. We've uh, talked about her bef- before and her case on the show, Don Marie Souza, um, who was an employee at American Medical Response. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board got involved in her case, and the upshot was they, you know, indicated that they thought that the employer's uh, policy, communications policy, was too restrictive and possibly violated labor laws because uh, what Don Marie was doing on Facebook um, could be construed as, you know, unionizing, organizing activity, the kinds of things that the labor laws protect. Um, so there's a really good piece in Time Magazine if you're looking for a nice overview of um, what happened here and what, uh, actually it's at time.com, who knows if it's in the magazine, um, but it, what happened here and what the implications are. So I recommend that it is by Reynolds Holding. Um, and Phil, have you seen a flurry of people um, updating their online communications policies in the wake of this to accommodate labor laws, or has this hit your radar at all? It has, and it, it, it's been a, 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 you know, hitting my inbox from several sources for the past couple of weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what's what's interesting is that you know for one thing it it doesn't seem to me that this is again I'm not the expert here but it doesn't seem to me to be settled law right I mean it seems mm-hmm. to have been a settlement out of court and that sort of thing I, I'm sure right. that there are um, you know I, I I don't work with any companies with which uh, labor unions. Um, are a large factor. I mean, it's just not part of my client list at this moment, but I would imagine that is also a very large part of the, um, of, of what, uh, um, of, of the details of this case, right? So, you know, I, I, I didn't, nobody certainly said, well, God, we got to strike this part out of the policy. Because actually, in the policies we tend to write, there's never anything that expressly says, thou shalt not say anything negative. Mm-hmm. However, when I look at something like this, there are a lot of policies that um, talk a lot about um, keeping private data private, um, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, what is properly water cooler talk or, you know, a closed door talk need not be splashed out over the Internet. It, it's it comes down to, you know, educating folks about, you know, courtesy and, and, and decency and the fact that not everybody lives a life online. And, um, you know, a lot of folks, especially millennials who come to the workplace who, you know, it's their first job out of college and, and, and everybody around them was you know, online and lived a very public life in some form or fashion. You know, they kind of have to realize that, you know, it's not a good idea to uh, tweet or, po- or otherwise post about that meeting that you had in the, you know, in the conference room or again, water cooler talk or things like that. You know, so I, 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 in the, in the light of this, this particular ruling, I, 
I strongly encourage folks to look at it in terms of, again, what is good online citizenship? And to me, what that person did, no matter you know how hard the boss was writing her or whatever, or however that worked out, um, you know, I really don't think that you know that you know she really thought through the consequences of that particular action. So, yeah, I think that's that's a good guess. Um, <laughs> Evan Reynolds Holdings here, Reynolds Holding, Reynolds Holding, the author of this timepiece, concludes that, uh, um, let's see, despite the unanswered issues, the case is an early and striking venture into the realm of workers' rights on the internet, and the message is reassuring. When it comes to Facebook and other new media, the old laws still work. Um, do you come away with that too? It sounds like uh, Reynolds is fairly... Um, up on the fact that the NRLB came in and, and slapped the company on the wrist, at least indicated that it would if the case did not settle. Right. I certainly like what he's saying there in as much as it is indicative of um, eschewing what we talk about so much on the show, internet exceptionalism, thinking that mm -hmm. the rules should be specially tailored and applied in particularly new ways because we're dealing with new technologies and new fora and new ways of, of, of doing things. So in as much as, you know, he's trying to have an, uh, a relatively optimistic outlook on things by saying that I get behind what he's saying and, and, you know, am, am, am fine with that. It, it perhaps is overstating a little bit because we really, uh, as you, as you've mentioned, or, or as I think Phil uh, mentioned, you know, this is not, uh, anything binding. This is just a, um, an action that was filed but was resolved. So there's no precedential value whatsoever, no official formal presidential, presid, precedential value. We can look at it and say, hey, this might be the position the NLRB would take. But other than that, we don't have much more than just a real um, nebulous kind of, kind of guidelines on, on things. Um, it, it, what, what's one thing that I think we can take from this is um, when we when we when we look at how things came out here, and we examine how um, employers think when they're when they're considering policies, you know, there were there were two or three different things that the NLRB was upset about. Only one of those was, you know, the the policy prohibiting uh, employees from disparaging the employer, talking about competitors and all that stuff. But focusing in on that one thing here, it's very difficult to overstate how much employers and or or you know other uh, powers that be within an organization are motivated by fear when it comes to this stuff when implementing these policies and that fear is in direct proportion i believe to the non understanding of one how these technologies actually work and two the practical effect on uh, of how the, the these technologies can be used by people if you're not a facebook user or if you're just a casual user or you know if you're not a twitter user and, and you're just not familiar with these things and you're put in a position to implement a policy the things that naturally are going to come into your mind especially when it's your job to protect the interests of the company and kind of you're, you're inherently programmed to be risk averse, my golly, you're going to 
um, you know, craft these policies to be as restrictive as possible and thinking and think to yourself, it's a little bit like Pascal's wager. You know, there's, there's less to be gained from, uh, being open-minded about this than there is in really clamping things down just for the, the security of it. So let's prohibit people from saying anything whatsoever, because at least they won't be saying anything bad, you know, um, uh, forsaking the the idea that there actually can be good uh, to come out of this stuff. So with all of this, kind of bringing all of these notions together and what I've been talking about here, it's good if the old laws can apply, uh, you know, the, the, you know the, the traditional legal framework can apply. I hope that it, it, it certainly does. And I think that's the best way that these things usually work out when, when legal issues arise. Let's hope also that you know, brick and mortar sensibilities prevail as well and not be motivated for things to be too overly restrictive just because of some uncertainty or being a little bit behind the curve uh, from from time to time. That's how I see uh, all of this stuff from a general level. Well, and and not making it about that one guy that messed it up for everybody, right? You know, which I, I think part right. of what you're saying there. You know, I like I like that term internet exceptionalism um, simply because you know very often what we encounter is this notion that there are rules, and then when you know you sit down at your computer, suddenly it's this great wide open frontier, and there are no rules. And it's like, you know, it, it's really interesting if if you look at the average so-called social media policy, right? If you look at the average social media policy and the average corporate handbook, you know, much of the former is lifted clean from the latter, right? Yes. And, it, it, and what's interesting to me is that the, the internet and the explosion of online communities and social media has such primacy now that organizations feel the need to produce another instrument to put in front of employees that in many ways, you know, at least half of it reiterates what should already be in the company handbook, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's what I've always found fascinating to me is this notion of people sitting down at the computer and suddenly the amnesia ray hits them, right? And they <laughs> forget about certain things, right? And then, you know, it, it's, and it's not like when someone sits down at that computer, it's not like the rules in the handbook have gone out the window. It's just that the the consequences of not following those rules achieve a much higher velocity online. And, and yes. I, think, I think that's the fear that you're talking about there is yeah. it's, not so much, it's not so much a set of new rules, but the velocity that breaking the old rules will achieve online. So. Right, and it's, it's velocity on top of velocity. There's the inherent damage... I didn't mean to say inherent. That's the second time I've used a unique word, the same unique word. So I foul on me. Um, there's this. There's the, the the bad stuff that can just happen, like when somebody says something bad on Facebook. Uh, but because these things are still so novel, and the fact that you know it's it's big news that Courtney Love settled a defamation lawsuit today for right. four hundred thirty thousand dollars for tweets. I mean, the fact that that these these. The, these bad things are, are, aren't just bad in and of themselves, but then they are bad. That, that badness is multiplied because of the attention that it gets due to the novelty of all this stuff. So, like I say, it's, it's or to, to kind of build on your metaphor, it's velocity, you know, accelerating um, with more velocity just because of the, the, the self-reflective nature of the badness. Right. And, and I'll, I'll also point to one more thing that I've noticed in these policies as they've matured. I mean, I've, I've, looked at, I've looked at this, you know, most closely within the past five, five and a half years. And 
What I have noticed too, and this is this is really interesting to me, is that you know five five and a half years ago, everybody had a blog policy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then cute. yeah, and then somebody did something stupid on MySpace, and then panic. Everybody has to have a MySpace policy, and you know it's just on. And then Twitter, it's like, oh my god, we have to have a Twitter policy, and it, it just became death by a thousand paper cuts at a lot of companies. And so, you know, one of the things that we look at is what what are the threads of commonality between different online platforms, right? And and you find that you when when, when you find that there that there's really no need to author a platform specific policy is that the the tenets of online citizenship on one platform are this pretty much the same on any other ones in terms of transparency in terms of you know behaving like a member of the community in terms of listening first in terms of being who you say you are um you know all those things are you know pretty common across you know every everything from forums to blogs to Facebook to Twitter and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that, you know, that sounds great and looks great on paper, but in practice, when you throw Twitter in front of people, I think mm-hmm. it all kind of breaks down because also. I think t- Twitter is kind of this game changer. You know, you were, t- you were talking about the progression from blogs to MySpace or Facebook um, to then these 140 character chunks. And I, I think that there's something about the knee jerk, rapid fire nature of, of what people can do on Twitter, people that never blogged and maybe don't use any other social network are on Twitter now. Um, Charlie right. Sheen, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know what you saw, but when that Twitter account went live, I just kept on hitting refresh and he was gaining oh, a yeah. thousand users every time I hit refresh. Right. No, <laughs> it was crazy. frightening. So, but for the rest of us who aren't, you know, racking up a million plus users in a couple of days, um, right. it's still this terribly public channel. Uh, and yet people, I think, still feel anonymous if they have just a few followers or, you know, I mean, I think there's something in the dynamic that goes on there because, you know, I mean, as Evan alluded to, the opportunity to say something that can get you in a half million dollars worth of trouble on Twitter is, um, is pretty real. And people well, just, I mean, it's again. It's, we're talking about an, an issue of velocity yeah. uh, versus the act of publication itself. And I and I think the the key thing about Twitter is, and this is a point that I wouldn't necessarily put in a social media policy. But mm-hmm. the thing about Twitter is that um, you know each tweet is individually addressable. So if you're trying to make a point, let's say it takes you three tweets to do it, any one of those tweets can be taken out of context, mm-hmm. right? And and I, I think that that's more along the lines of corporate education and transformation with regard to social media rather than something I would put in a policy, mm-hmm. right? And I, and I try to keep those two things separate too. Right. Um, but you know, but again, the point's well taken is that you know we've seen lots of examples of of, of things that you know exploded on Twitter that we probably couldn't conceive of you know, in 2006, 2007, right? Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think that is a valid point. Yeah. Hey, Jay, what, is, what does your organization do about Twitter? Can people use social media from work and can they tweet from work and, is, and have there been any issues about Twitter that have come up? Yes, everyone here can use social media to their, to their extent. I mean, the biggest thing that uh, people are told is just think, 
think before posting. As mm -hmm. far as the folks we support, there's a significant generational gap where we have some really young folks that are into Facebook, into Twitter. A lot of the departments and organizations here have their own Facebook page, have their own Twitter page, whereas mm -hmm. some of the uh, people that are here a little bit longer aren't so much into that and one of the things that they often try to do is come to us and just get a better understanding of what these services can provide mm -hmm. and one of the big things that I often repeat to them and to some of the younger folks is to basically never put anything online that you're not ready to say to the person's face. So wait, and can I, I don't mean to put you on the spot here and I'm not that kind of a host or reporter, but I, you know, in getting ready for the show and getting to know you, I went and looked back at your Twitter stream and there was something in there, you know, a week or so ago about how bad the bandwidth was at your work where you were. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's not like a terrible thing to say about your job, but you might, you know, if someone from your job sees that and reads it and they they might not be too happy that you're griping about the infrastructure, especially you as an IT support person. Um, so, you, you know, I mean, I think even for someone as savvy as you who goes around giving advice to people within your company that, you know, you got to know that all this is public. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard it is. To, it's very difficult. There's yeah. sometimes when I want to take uh, a Tommy gun and go to the wireless access point and just cap off a few rounds. That's probably <laughs> what I was talking about on Twitter. Um, but, yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, I think if I was to talk to the engineers about that, I'd be a little bit more diplomatic. As yeah, in the exactly. wireless does not give desired operation or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Is right. is performing suboptimally at this time. <laughs> right. All right. Well, one, then, one group group of people that uh, for whom this um, is not terribly self-evident are, and, and I'm just going to let uh, Phil comment on his pretty funny uh, post about media training coaches and sportscasters, you know, the, the tweets from athletes are just incredible. <laughs> I mean, one could write an entire law-oriented book about what these folks are doing, you know, and then another one about celebrities. But why don't you uh, talk about coaches and sportscasters for a moment, Phil? <laughs> yeah, I was I was inspired to write this um, this post, and the, and the thing is, I, I don't act. The only sports I watch is World Cup every four years, mm -hmm. and, and and the Super Bowl. But I was inspired to to write this during the Super Bowl, in that um, you know I, I just started noticing that I guess it's an effect of you know leaning on the the visual action. Uh, in order to carry the story, and maybe the TV sportscasters' um, verbal skills have atrophied as a result. Because I just remember there was this one part where um, the uh, the 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 uh, anchors went to the uh, field reporter and they and who had just who was just in the Green Bay locker room or whatever, and and she said that she talked to the coach and the coach said, "Well, on defense we have to prevent them from scoring, and uh, and on offense we have to maximize every conversion or whatever." And I was just kind of like, "Well, wait a minute! Didn't he just say our defense has to defend and our offense have to you know score?" Which it doesn't strike me as particularly brilliant. And and a favorite one of mine is when um, when coaches or, or players say, "You know, we we came to win." And I'm just like, really, guys, what did you come to do, really? I mean, yeah, really. Is, is, is it some kind of, you know, I think I described it as uh, as uh, highly expensive group therapy 
the aimed at moderating excessive self-esteem and it completely failed right <laughs> you know and and I, you know it's just one of those gripes i've always had about sportscasters and then you know what did they try to do did you do you guys remember when dennis miller when Dennis Miller tried his hand at being a, a an NFL sportscaster, it was yeah. a disaster because the guy's the guy's brain is a stomach for pop culture, and you know, and and I I heard I actually heard a story about there was a guy who, um, you know, is was similarly brainy, and he was uh, he had started like a, 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 a email newsletter service where if you subscribe to his service, he would look up Dennis Miller's arcane references and email the definitions to you during the game right <laughs> and, <laughs> terribly and, and, valuable and, and, service right exactly Some, and, and someone so, should do that for twill by the way <laughs> 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 if we could just crowdsource that little need that would be great <laughs> yeah so i mean that that was a that was a, a uh, you know a, a frustration that i had and, and when i when i watched televised sports um, a lot more often in college, what I would find myself doing is that I would turn on the TV, mute it, and then go to the radio and turn that on. And that turned out to be an ideal sports watching experience. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, what, what you saw in that post was a result of uh, of uh, deep frustration. Um, also because I was rooting for Pittsburgh, but anyway. <laughs> right. Well, let's, as long as we're talking about Twitter um, and, and how it can be problematic for people, uh, of course, there, there are the, um, the wonderful parody accounts that we all enjoy so much, but uh, can be, you know, a world of trouble for the people who create them, either because they're, you know, within an organization who doesn't sanction them doing that, or, um, you know, they just want to be a private citizen and one way or another, this thing has taken off and taken on a life of its own. I guess that just happened in your neck of the woods, Evan. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, Phil and I both are in, in Chicago, so I'm oh, sure right. this has been, um, you know, in, in, in his mind too. The, the the Twitter account is at Mayor Emanuel, and it's, you know, was opened up a few months ago, soon after um, Rahm Emanuel threw his hat in the ring um, to, you know, become the, the mayor of Chicago. And it, you know, it quickly, uh, well, first of all, it, 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 it churned out around 2,000 tweets just in the matter of months and got up to 40,000 followers and was just profanity uh, ridden. You know, there was, there were all kinds of F-bombs, you know, there's F-bombs in just about every tweet, which, you know, is a very um, slick parody of, of uh, Rahm Emanuel. You know, he's known for kind of having that, that, that rough edge, despite his outward smooth appearance would be one way of, of, of putting it, I guess. And so um, just recently, the, um, you know, the, the author, the true author of this parody uh, revealed himself. He's a uh, professor of journalism, no less, here at, um, where was it, Phil? Was it at UIC? Colum- or no, Columbia, Columbia College. College. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, just a, a professor, Dan Sinker. And, uh, you know, just, just brilliant stuff. If you go to at Mayor Emanuel, and that's at M-A-Y-O-R-E-M-A-N-U-E-L. Emmanuel is kind of kind of weird spelled there. Um, you know, it's just, just really hilarious stuff. And, and he kind of phased it out after the uh, election, which was, you know, in the last part of February, where uh, he kind of fades off into 
what was it, a time vortex or something like that. So, <laughs> um, so as far as it, it goes here, I mean, the way that this uh, relates to, to another story, which, you know, was in our discussion points uh, today, which was Twitter's temporary suspension of uh, one of the fake Steve Jobs uh, Twitter accounts. What was the handle on that? Because um, I know we got to be careful like in our moments. It was at yeah. fake CEO Steve. That's right. That's right. right and, right. Um, you know, the, the one thing that when, when I read the, the, the Twitter suspending that, you know, for violation of its policies against, um, you know, impersonation, um, it immediately immediately made me think of the, the Mayor Emanuel account because there was a there was a quote from um, Twitter spokeswoman um, talking about the, 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 the Steve Jobs account saying that. Um, well, I guess it's the, the Paris parody policy. It says it says that the site protects users' speech, uh, but they've got to be clearly marked as such. In order to avoid impersonation, yeah. an account's profile information should make it clear that the creator of the account is not actually the same person or entity as the subject of the parody. So when you look at the Mayor Emanuel account, there was nothing that expressly said, hey, this is a parody. You know, there was no like parody tag right. or anything like that, but it was a picture mm-hmm. of, you know, Rahm Emanuel doing this, you know, putting his nose to his thumb. And um, the, the um, I, I've got to pull it up here. The, um, uh, well, I, I'm not going to pull it up, but you know, like the little profile description was, so what was it, Phil? Something like, I'm the next uh, expletive MF uh, mayor. Get used yeah, to right. it. Another, and, another and, ex- and, you know, and, and to you know, drilling down on that, the notion of parody a little bit more, it's like, is it really beyond the realms of imagination that um, Rahm Emanuel would be that foul-mouthed? No. I mean, he has this, <laughs> this incredible reputation for, for being, you know, particularly salty with his language. So, you know, but I, I mean, you know, I'm of the opinion, of, of course, obviously within the bounds of the law, Twitter is under no obligation to provide Twitter accounts under, you know, you know, according to any rules but Twitter's, right? But, you know, and it's good that they accept that parody is a very big part of of uh not only internet culture but i mean when you even think it when you even think back to you know the founding fathers and the degree to which parody was used as a uh, persuasive tool back then um you know i i mean it's it, it would be a shame if uh, if a if the if the law were to create a chilling effect it's a popular legal term i know on right. parody but if if um uh, if companies were, as a consequence, cowed into, you know, maybe forbidding, forbidding that. Um, because, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the Rahm Emanuel account was funny. And, of course, uh, there's, a, there's now becoming a rich history of, of parodying Steve Jobs. And, you know, and, and it provides humor, provides commentary. And, and, and it's, a, it's a form of, uh, you know, it, it's a form of uh, uh, opinion making and speech that, that I think should, you know, absolutely be protected. And it's yeah. great how Twitter yeah, really facilitates that because it's, you know, it's easy to set these up and, you know, it's not hard to find a photo to slap up on there and write some kind of trite little little profile about yourself. And, you know, there are just countless of uh, uh, countless accounts, uh, you know, I mean, like Al-Qaeda, of course, has a, a parody type of presence and, uh, you know, famous thinkers. It's not hard to, you know, go follow Ralph Waldo Emerson, for example, not so much a parody because there's not really a humor element to it. But, you know, there's all kinds of these uh, parody 
types of things. So one, it's interesting to look at how Twitter facilitates that, we, we, you know, with the, the ease, the, the, the low barrier to entry, so to speak. But then it's also just really interesting to kind of examine at a fundamental level what parody is. And we're given a lot of right. kind of good object lessons or examples to, to look at here. And the Mayor Emanuel one does that very well because, you know, we, we all, well, I don't know if we all do, but many of us tend to conflate or confuse parody and, and satire. And right. as I understand the distinction, um, uh, parody involves as or has as an essential element the idea of imitation, you know, where you're actually taking on the characteristics of the thing that you are intending to ridicule, whereas satire may not even necessarily be all that funny and still be satire, but it's kind of um, lampooning uh, an idea or a notion. Um, and and so with with parody, it, it actually has to be a little bit more clever because the the intelligence of the humor is uh, relates to the extent to which you can imitate something without it being too over the top and just being you know clownish and not even if it's clownish to the extent that's not even funny. Money, or you, you don't want it to be too true to life, or you don't, you know, the the humor doesn't emerge uh, from the from the activity. So it's just really entertaining to see how um, you know this can be done in a really optimal way uh, by you know just kind of putting the sliding scale on, on the parody at the right point, uh, and you can really get some get some great stuff. And, and this is just you know one example. So then you know of course Twitter and its policy enforcement has to has to deal with that and make some judgments on where that sliding scale has gone too far. Right. Knox Harrington is making some great points in IRC about, you know, how basically Twitter's trying to walk the fine line between um, allowing parody and satire. And and I like that they've come out and said, you know, we're going to go ahead and do that and feel free. Have at it. But also trying to prevent identity theft and, and impersonating someone. Right. Um, you know, trying to defraud people. Knox Harrington gives the example of, um, you know, hey, I'm Steve Jobs. Send me $500 and I'll send you an iPad. Right. That, that sort <laughs> That's of just not funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just not funny. But, you know, I mean, presumably, it, it, it strikes me that Twitter's policy actually goes farther than it has to. I mean, I see why they do it. Uh, because when, by, by, and let me just finish the thought, uh, by saying that you actually have to specify in the, um, uh, what is it, profile area of your Twitter page that you are not who you're pretending to be. Uh, because if you're reading a Twitter stream that says your CEO, Steve, and you see a tweet that says iPad 2 is now 33% thinner and 50% more absorbent, you're going to know that's not Steve Jobs. I mean, that should be, you know, fairly self-evident. Yeah. So. That, that's great because I mean the the policy. I'm just and I didn't look at the policy. I just looked at the quote from Doug Gross's article on CNN.com. But you know he quotes it says in and I think I read this before, so I, I apologize for repeating it. But it's worth saying it again. In order to avoid impersonation, you should and here's the important language should make it clear that the creator of the account is not actually the same person. So mm -hmm. you don't. I mean I don't read that to where saying you have to like you know slap the word parody on there or something mm -hmm. like that. But this this whole process of making it clear this, mm -hmm. this is fascinating to me you can make it clear you know pretty just, muddy how you might make it clear <laughs> right but but through the actual content itself you know can be mm -hmm. can can make it clear it doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of meta designation it's just you know because it's just so um it, because it's it's parody in the right uh mixture 
it, it it's thereby made clear. So, you know, we always try to give props to to Alex McGilvery, you know, for uh, over at Twitter, who's a, mm-hmm. uh, who's a friend of of Twill. So, you know, maybe this is another instance of his brilliance of of kind of crafting this in the right way, so that it it fosters a robust development in this ecosystem. Yes, I like to think so. Certainly. Um, and Evan, you have something uh, pretty interesting to talk about after we take a break here about um, child pornography laws and who exactly can be um, held accountable for them. It might not be uh, your first thought. Uh, But in the meantime, I want to thank our sponsor, Hover. Uh, I use Hover.com. Lots of us here at Twit do. Uh, Hover is all about making domain registration and service simple. Over the years, domain registration sites have become more and more complicated. And I know this because I still have some with other sites that I'm slowly moving over to Hover as they expire. And uh, just the process of even moving them from one site to another can be so complicated and, you know, 10 menus deep. One thing Hover will do is they will walk you through that whole process. They have human beings when you call from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern. You get a no-hold policy for customer service. You can call them up and you can say, hey, I'm trying to transfer a domain and it seems really complicated on the site where I'm registered now. Could you walk me through it? And they have all kinds of FAQs and how-tos to do the just that. So they make it super easy for you. And then once you're there, they don't sell you a ton of services. They focus on making it easy to register and manage domains and email When you call, you get a live person. You don't get put on hold. You get their name. You can have email exchange follow-ups with them afterwards. Um, And you can use their service to do much more than just manage domain names. You can set up email addresses, forward email addresses. You can get yourself a personalized email address above and beyond any domain names you have. Um, They have a bunch of last names that they have registered themselves. So... Um, Phil, I don't know, you might want to be Phil at Um, gomes.net. Apart from your Edelman life, you know, we uh, all of us um, have been talking today about how it's important to maintain these distinctions between our professional and uh, personal online identities. And this is one way you can do it. You can get yourself a personalized domain from Hubbard. And then it's super easy to seamlessly integrate that with any other email that you have, um, and they have all kinds of guidance for that too. You can create URL extensions and uh, personalize them with that domain that you're using there at Hover. You can set privacy controls, all with fewer clicks and without the website trying to sell you something that you don't want. To try their domain management service, Hover makes it easy uh, to do that. You just enter the name of the URL you want to transfer, then Hover gives you the next steps and tracks the proc progress as the URL is transferred in. And these are free. Uh, These transfers are completely free. They do charge you $10 to extend the domain registration past its current expiration date at the time of transfer. Hover gives you who is privacy for free. And for many people who usually purchase domain privacy with all of their domains, this means they'll pay less with Hover. So if you need a new domain, use the offer code TWIL and get 10% off. That's when you go to TWIL, T-W-I-L, hover.com and use twill as your offer code thanks so much hover for your support we love your services all right evan so um tell us about this strange kentucky federal case that involved sexting this was the first case uh that considered the question as to whether a minor 
uh, who is accused of creating sexually explicit material of another minor and thereby distributing it runs afoul of the the federal statutes that that prohibit that so the question presented for the first time and this was a civil suit it wasn't a, a criminal case but still the analysis should be isomorphic to the to the criminal context um the the, the question presented for the first time is whether a minor can be liable for um, you know distributing child pornography with, you know of of uh, of other minors, and the question was answered in the affirmative. Yes, the minor uh, you know can be liable for violating the federal anti-child pornography laws. So, though the this case does not uh, address the exact factual context, it's definitely. Um, analogous and very, uh, you know, related to this question that uh, gets everyone up in uh, in uh, makes everyone concerned, especially state legislators and and local county prosecutors. This idea of sexting, the idea that if a minor is going to uh, take a photograph, a digital photograph of him or herself, and there and then transmit that, you know, usually by s by you know text message or by email or whatever to some else do they thereby you know become a child pornographer and the i think the implication of this decision is that you know that 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 would be a violation of federal law itself factually this is a little bit different because the defendants here were three 14 year old boys who were alleged to have coerced enticed and persuaded a 14 year old girl to make a sexually explicit video. So, so you know how those kids are. They made this video and then of course they put it on the, on the web or they distribute it via the internet is all it says. I don't know how they actually did it. And so then the, 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 the section of the federal criminal code that prohibits the creation and distribution of child pornography also provides a civil cause of action. So this, this girl sued them and the court, um, granted summary judgment. Uh, in favor of, or actually, I guess, denied their motion for summary judgment, saying that, hey, uh, well, they made several arguments, but one of these is that, you know, a minor can't really be considered the one here to, to, to be the violator on all this. So, so there's, a, there's a number of different issues that, that come out of this. Um, and, and I think, you know, a, a couple of, of big ones are obviously there are, the court is a little bit was constrained to look at the the literal text of the statute and consider this question of what does it mean to be a person <laughs> and it's not as profound or as metaphysical as as it sounds at first blush mm-hmm. but the the statute prohibits the the possession you know the creation transmission possession of of child pornography by any person and so there's no uh, definition of what it means. Uh, uh, you know, the, the word "person" is not defined in in another part of the statute. The the um, the the term "identifiable minor" is defined as uh, you know as a person. So the the court did some uh, from a certain perspective. You could look at it as some weird um, defining of things here, almost a little bit circular, saying, "Well, an an identifiable." identifiable person is, uh, uh, sorry, an identifiable minor is a person. Therefore, a person would be an identifiable minor. So it's a little bit weird here, but really the court uh, is construing the text as well as it could, had no choice but to conclude that there was really no way of, of getting around uh, this question here. So in cases like this, yeah, these these 
these kids, you know, did a bad thing uh, by by filming this girl and, and distributing it. So there's no question that they should be held liable. It just the the extension of all this into the sexting uh, context makes it much more problematic. Because mm-hmm. and the other main point I wanted to, to to raise on this is that there seems to be a real fundamental notion built into all anti-child porn laws of this disparity in power and that the victim is specially victimized because he or she is a minor and is being taken advantage of someone who has totally different sort of power over them. It becomes odd when you start prosecuting kids uh, who could in some sense be victimizing themselves. The penalties for distribution of child pornography um, exist um, you know, in, in a different way than what, uh, well, I mean, there actually are no penalties for non-obscene distribution of non-obscene adult pornography. So there's just this weird anomalous uh, uh, specter of a completely more egregious type of liability that that is is here, and there just seems a little bit uh, seems like something that is just not quite right in in certain situations like this. Yeah, it seems to me like this court may have gotten caught up with the fact that we want to discourage, you know, more bullying kind of conduct among kids and and that uh, there's a lot of concern and proposed legislation toward that end um that this huge um penalty laden kind of consequence may not be you know the right tool to address the problem in this case right had they been just 4 years older it would have been mm-hmm. perfectly protected by the first amendment it wouldn't have been an issue at all mhm yeah, really um, strange little case there. It is a, a district court case, so that means that um, it is subject to review, perhaps. It is a criminal case, so we'll just have to see um, what happens down the road with that. Um, we'll, uh, I, I think that uh, it seems like an example of, um, you know, sort of square peg round hole as far as the problem and the solution. So let's uh, move on to um, talk about some copyright-related stuff. Uh, Evan, you uh, pointed me toward the Sheen family circus. We uh, have all been watching the um, Sheen events unfold all week, I'm sure. And for anyone who hasn't, uh, just uh, Google winning. And you're likely to find <laughs> a whole lot of funny stuff that Charlie Keen has been saying both on Twitter and elsewhere um, all week long. So uh, if uh, you've got tiger blood and Adonis DNA, then uh, you're <laughs> likely going to enjoy um, what Evan pointed me to uh, earlier this week, the Sheen Family Circus, which is interesting from a legal standpoint uh, because it mashes up. I take it verbatim quotes from Mr. Sheen and uh, old family circus cartoons in uh, a humorous way. Um, well, well, what I think was also great, and it's yeah. a little frightening at the same time. At the same time, New York Magazine has a great quiz where they have a series of fifteen quotes, and you have to you have to guess whether it came from Momar Gaddafi, Glenn Beck, or Charlie Sheen. Oh, that's great. And, and I got I got one out of five right, and then I just gave up. <laughs> I was just like, I'm <laughs> terrible at this. But um, you know, so far in my in my uh, Facebook, it looks like the best anybody's been able to do is ten out of fifteen. So, wow, <laughs> yeah, 
those are those are good ones to mash up right there. Um, Evan, do you uh, do you see? We've been talking about parody. Do you see any uh, legal issues about um, Sheen Family Circus here? Well, of course, you know, I mean, there's there there are issues, you know, as as to how they ultimately should be resolved. You know, clearly, I think there's nothing to be up in arms about here. But, you know, if we want to be copyright literalists here and, and, and look at this, you know, there is a, a, a copying verbatim or however you would talk about using the whole um you know, the whole picture, you know, because Family Circus, as as we know, is just, you know, a one panel uh, comic. So they're using the entire work, um, you know, the entire at least visual portion of the work and, and mixing or, you know, mashing it up with, with something, you know, coming uh, from somewhere else that, you know, may or may not have its own copyright issues. Are you going to, you know, is Good Morning America, ABC going to assert copyright in, you know, individual segments of the Charlie Sheen interview? I don't know. But, but you know, looking at it from a literal standpoint, there definitely is two separate appropriations of, of works here that gives rise to something greater than the, the the sum of its parts, a new work. And so it's just a nice, very simple little example of, of remix culture manifesting itself, taking two things that we're all familiar with and putting them together so that there's there's funniness that exists that, that didn't before just by, by having assembled these two things. And I, I would think that that uh, benefit, I, I can't believe I'm getting ready to say that mixing up Charlie Sheen and the family circus is in the public interest, but you know, <laughs> it most that, certainly is right. With, with that said, you know, that, that benefit with a small B, you know, is greater than, you know, the, the, um, the, the, uh, over grabbiness of the copyright owners in the, in a situation like this. All right. I would, I would tend to agree with you. Um, but I, I do think it raises an interesting point about, and, and I didn't put this in our discussion points, but it's something I read this last week. Another, you know, in the series of things that seems to come up about whether tweets are copyrightable. Um, and this particular instance involved um, somebody's tweets being used then in another context and being cast as quotes you know, as something that you've said publicly and therefore um, from a, a news gathering um, standpoint, it would be, I guess, the, the logic behind quotes in general in the journalistic stand, uh, context is that they are, um, it's probably a mix of, you know, a short enough chunk that it's not copyrightable. And there, if it is, there is a fair use um consideration that would come into play to allow something to be quoted without having mm. to get express permission. Um, so, you know, I, I, that sprang to mind too when I read this, that um, taking someone's tweets and then putting them, or I guess these aren't tweets, these are just things that uh, the man has gone around and said. Um, but still, you know, the extent to which you can freely quote and remix raises um, its own whole host of legal issues. Um, Jay, any thoughts on Charlie Sheen tweeting quotes or anything else? Well, I definitely think if he has a quote in the public arena that it's probably all right to, you know, just to, to quote or to even pass that on. I think it's personally hysterical. Mm. Uh, it, one of the things that really brings to mind with something like this, especially whether or not you can copyright it is is anyone be profiting from uh you know reusing his tweets 
I mean, I think you can certainly quote him because I kind of liken Twitter to something you would say in a conversation. Like mm-hmm. if you're in a bar talking a bunch amongst a bunch of people and someone else heard something you say and they could quote it to someone else. That's kind of how I see Twitter. I don't really see a, a big deal passing on something Charlie Sheen said. Would you want yeah. to do that? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's an interesting point, and it may be a, 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 kind of a, a where you can point to how copyright laws are anachronistic because it only becomes a copyright issue because it's been reduced to a tangible medium medium of expression. Uh, you know, you actually have to create text to make a tweet. That's a fundamental uh, notion of reality. And so, you know, the fact that we treat it more as conversational and we may think of it, um, you know, cognitively more as just conversation you'd be having at a bar or a cocktail party or, you know, whatever, um, it, it, where and clearly those things would not be copyrightable because you're not reducing it to a tangible medium of expression as you know media social media provides us with more opportunities to take on this conversational role through the technical use of of media it becomes a bit even more strained and and the application of copyright becomes a little bit you know more um dissonant or or something like that well folks probably know cuz we've talked about it before on the show and it's been much in the news that uh, the federal government, um, through ICE, have been shutting down websites before this COICA legislation that we've also talked about has even uh, become a formal reality. Uh, ICE thinks they have the authority to do it now and has been out doing it uh, by simply um, monkeying about with uh, the DNS and making it so that sites no longer resolve to um, where one thinks they're going to go. Um, So the other shoe has dropped on that and there has actually been an arrest. And I want to get into that in more detail. But first, I want to talk about FreshBooks and thank them for sponsoring this episode of Twill. FreshBooks is the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look professional. Get started with a free package at freshbooks.com. If you're a small business owner, consultant, or freelancer, you probably love having your own business, but you don't enjoy invoicing. Goodness knows I don't. Uh, Quickly and easily, you can create and send professional-looking invoices. You can upload your company logo to appear on your invoices and give them a more professional look. Your clients can download a PDF of the invoice, which is very convenient for them. You can receive payments for your invoices. Your clients can pay you via PayPal and 11 other electronic payment services, or they can pay with a credit card. There are more options that FreshBooks gives you. There are automated late payment reminders to follow up with clients. If you invoice by the hour, as uh, is near and dear to our hearts in the legal profession, uh, the time tracking feature lets you log hours and consolidate your timesheets into one invoice instantly. If you want to send physical invoices for a small fee, FreshBooks will print and mail them to your clients, complete with a return envelope at just $1.39 per invoice or less if bought in bulk. And you can use the FreshBooks iPhone app to track your time and invoice your customers when you're away from the office. As a lawyer, I really appreciate that kind of convenience to consolidate uh, both your timekeeping uh, application and your invoicing application really makes sense when you're billing by the hour. Over 2 million users have been sending and paying invoices with FreshBooks since 2004. Try out FreshBooks free today for up to three of your clients. It takes about a minute to set up an account. You go to freshbooks.com, you sign up, 
And when they ask you how you heard about FreshBooks, just let them know you heard about it right here on Twill, T-W-I-L. Every day, FreshBooks is giving away a birthday cake to one of our audience members, and it doesn't have to be your birthday to win the cake. FreshBooks draws a name every day for the entire month. So if uh, you're interested in getting a birthday cake and some great invoicing services, that's freshbooks.com. We thank them so much for their support. So uh, the folks over at ICE have been, and I should uh, tell you exactly what that in, uh, acronym stands for. It is Immigration, the uh, U.S. Office of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. And they're the folks who have been shutting down a bunch of piracy-related sites, or so they say these sites are, um, by uh, just shutting off the ability of those sites to resolve um, a quirk uh, based on the fact that uh, so many of the domain registrars and registries are located here in the U.S. and thus subject to our federal government's jurisdiction. Now they finally arrested somebody, a 32-year-old Texas resident who was accused of streaming pirated sports broadcasts over his website, channelsurfing.net. That sounds awfully familiar to me. I hate to say that. Um, I don't know, maybe just, uh, I don't think I've actually ever used it, but it seems, is that, was that like a pretty popular place to go? Do you guys know? I wouldn't admit uh, it. By, by asking us to admit that, you would have, you'd be asking us to, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're all a little bit leery of it. So I think well, that's why that few seconds of definite. What was the URL again? <laughs> uh, channelsurfing.net. It's not going to resolve now. Not since I got to it. Um, but uh, the, the kind of scary thing here is um, that Mr. McCarthy is going to, you know, we were just talking about the, the stiff penalties for uh, under the federal porn laws for minors. Pretty stiff penalties when you're talking about um, federal copyright uh, infringement of criminal charges. Um, the excellent point here at paidcontent.org from Joe Mullen in our show notes, which you can see them all at delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw slash 101. Um, Joe makes the point, entertainment companies had to engage in years of litigation to shut down sites like Grokster and LimeWire. And the idea of putting the creators of those sites in prison wasn't even on the table. Um, McCarthy, on the other hand, will have to fight an uphill battle to keep himself out of prison at no expense whatsoever to the sports leagues, who, according to court documents, helped the government target his site. Um, Evan, what do you think of this trend? I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for him. You know, I mean, this was written in a way, I think, to try to elicit sympathy for this defendant. But mm -hmm. what he was doing was very different than the creators of Grokster and LimeWire and, and all of those. They were just providing the instrumentality where you whereby you could go do your own infringement. This guy was just, as I understand the allegations, was just taking this content and distributing it, um, you know, wholesale. Um, and so, and, and, you know, he was charging for it directly. So, um, you know, the, the, the criminal copyright laws are, are on the books uh, to handle, you know, those particularly egregious uh, situations, you know, I mean, there's a certain threshold that, that has to be met, you know, you've got to, you know, doing it, be doing it for commercial gain and sell, you know, and, and sell something like $2,500 worth of the stuff in a six month period. It's a relatively low threshold, but it's more than just the, the casual person out there who might be taking a family circus 
um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, panel and making something up with it. You know, if what if what this guy was doing was really true, I mean, he was, you know, he he deserves to to be accountable for that. And it's also to the same extent fair that the uh, the sports leagues should not have to to foot the bill for that. Now, yeah, we as taxpayers are are footing the bill for that, but I guess that's just one of those things that um, you know that we have to live with if we're going to as a society decide that certain things are so bad that they they give rise to to criminal liability. So, I mean, I don't mean to say that we should be taking this guy out and stringing him up without a trial and all that stuff. You know, he'll he'll have, you know, all of the due process stuff, uh, uh, you know, in place here. It's just mm-hmm. that I would encourage not everybody to... Um, to, you know, just naturally think that it's so bad that, you know, somebody actually gets prosecuted criminally for copyright violations. Let's just wait and see what happens. Yep. Sage advice. Uh, Phil, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I'd have to agree with Evan on this is that, you know, I, I as I'm reading the, as I was reading this article, it was kind of like, well, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm expected to be sympathetic with the, <laughs> with the protagonist here. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm actually not. Um, you know, I, I and 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 I guess I I am a bit conflicted. I mean, I I I, um, I believe very strongly. You know, people who you know own copyrighted works have every right to uh, every right to protect them. Um, you know, the the point about the uh, the sports leagues not having any. Uh, uh, financial skin in the game is is it's a it's a decent point i guess i don't know how how far that um how how far that would actually go if you, you know, kind of took that to its logical conclusion um i i guess you know the question is how far the sports leagues how far the, are the sports leagues willing to go so for example if i'm sitting at my on my couch with my laptop and i'm tweeting a play-by-play um, is that an actionable offense? Uh, you know, and, and um, I would, I would imagine the sports leagues would argue yes, right? Because I'm pretty I, sure I they know. would, yeah. Right, you know, which strikes me as ridiculous, and 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 that's that's why I'm I'm kind of kind of torn by this. And you know, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I volunteer for. Um, an annual open source conference that happens here over at uh, University of Illinois Chicago, and you know I, I I sometimes find myself torn between between sort of two worlds, right? You know, one that uh, richly believes that all information must be free, right? The whole Richard Stallman, Stuart Brand kind of thing, and um, and then you know some of us on the other hand that say, well, you know copyright ownership and patent and that sort of thing all should mean something right and so you know i'm i'm looking at this going you know it's clear that it's clear that we have an agency that wants to make an example out of somebody um i i guess i'm just concerned about what kind of slippery slope this could turn into and again uh whether or not relatively innocent examples like the twitter example i just described whether or not that's something that the sports leagues are going to go after yeah, because again, you've got Twitter coming in and throwing a wrench into things as people are uh, watching and maybe they're watching a blacked out game in other um, right. regions. Uh, that it, Just in their sheer fan-oriented exuberance, um, they may feel compelled to give a blow-by-blow without actually thinking about the ramifications of that. Um, right. And again, because Twitter is so immediate... Uh, it's the kind of thing people just do without even thinking about it. Uh, Jay, any thoughts? I think the the $90,000 that he earned is the exact catalyst that kind of threw him into action. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, aside of the fact mm-hmm. that he just got caught mm-hmm. and that he, you know, he should be held accountable, like Evan said, I think the fact that he made some money off of this in addition to making content available, he wasn't licensed to do so with. I think that has a lot to do with it. Right. And and that really is the threshold for criminal liability. I mean, not 90,000. It's actually much less than that. But, mm-hmm. you know, no, the way the copyright laws are written, nobody's going to get in trouble just for doing a, a play-by-play. Um, nobody's going to get be criminally liable for just a play-by-play on Twitter because anybody, even the most uh, conservative pro-IP uh, ownership camp is going to have a hard time saying with a straight face that you're going to be able to extract you know for commercial gain directly from that and i that's my word inserting the word directly in there that's not in the statute but you know it, it's it, it's really the, the criminal stuff there again it's it's a pretty high threshold because it's got to be somebody who truly is a purloiner you know taking this stuff repackaging it and selling it and making lots of money from it that's really got to be the, the distinction here and so you know i don't feel too uncomfortable thinking that you know anybody's rights are going to be trampled upon um, you know, not only with the, 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 um, the, the threshold that would have to be met just to get a federal case on file, a federal indictment for this, but then also, you know, the, the, the burden of proof, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, all of this mm-hmm. stuff, that's higher in a criminal context. So I just, I don't think we have a whole lot to worry about. Yeah, just in, in a bigger picture sort of way, it comes back to the point that, that we talk about all the time on the show. And that is, you know, from a business standpoint, folks need who are copyright owners, I think need to be taking a longer view and a more practical view um, toward piracy and how they address it and get rid of it. You know, the reality is that the reason this happened, the reason this guy was able to make $90,000 is because people want that kind of access to this material and they weren't getting it. So if you're not going to give it to them, piracy is going to (laughs) be the result and, you know, it's interesting to talk about this against the backdrop of just this week, uh, the announcement from Amazon that their um, Amazon Instant Service is now available with over 5,000 titles for free to subscribers who are already members of Amazon Prime or people who become members of Amazon Prime, which, you know, I mean, talk about, <laughs> to, to quote freely from Charlie Sheen, Winning! Oh my gosh, what a great concept! <laughs> I am I am so excited about all this, and and think that Amazon did a great thing. And the the discussion that I've been hearing around it is, oh well, they'll never take down Netflix. Who bloody cares? You know, this is a great um, adjunct to the services that are already out there. An incredible benefit for people who are already paying for Prime, which I think there are a lot of us. I've been doing it for a few years and, you know, feel like it pays me back in spades because of all the physical goods I order from Amazon. Um, so it's just, you know, if the funny thing about it is that the, the content producers are leaving it to people like Netflix and Amazon to, you know, wrangle with them and then ultimately provide this service that um, people are clamoring for and that will enable um, lawbreakers to make allegedly $90,000 by providing their stuff in an unauthorized way. So, you know, there's there's my rant on that. Follow the Amazon example, negotiate with these people, make deals with them and make your material available because, you know, otherwise you're just going to pay the price. Um, anybody else as excited about this as I am and, and think it's a big deal? Evan? Well, I, I have I have two points, actually. I mean, one one is, I mean, I have a Roku box at home, 
right? Mm-hmm. And I get both uh, Netflix and Amazon streaming through there. And uh, we tried uh, Amazon for the first time the other day. It was a social network, actually. My wife and I watched the social network. And, uh, you know, it, it's an entire library that, you know, isn't isn't on Netflix, right? And, you know, it, and you know, bo- both companies are going to have to write very large checks and send them southward to Hollywood. Um, and, you know, there there is some debate on on how sustainable that is but um you know when you bring up piracy and distribution models i don't know if anybody uh here has read the uh, pirate's dilemma by matt mason no um, that sounds like a and, good one oh you know i i'm not much for business books um i remember starting out in my career like you know just out of school people had like a gun to my head that you know you have to read you know crossing the chasm or else, right? And it just soured, it soured me to the business book genre for a very, very long time. And then um, it was actually on a client assignment that I discovered um, The Pirate's Dilemma by Matt Mason, which came out around 2008 or so. And his, his central thesis is that if you are a goods or content provider and you see piracy in your, in your market, um, Congratulations, people have done the hard work of figuring out inefficiencies in your distribution model. And, and, and mm-hmm. that's the central thesis. And he, he walks through how that pirate mentality wasn't just something that, um, that you know, emerged with Napster or was you know, quasi-pseudo-neo solved by iTunes. Um, they look at, he, he looks at, he takes it as far back as like the birth of disco and the birth of punk. And, um, and it, 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 Denise, to, to exactly that point you were talking about, um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a really great book. And what, what I like about it is that it's a, it's a marketing and business book that speaks to my generation, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, and it, it talks about the punk movement and Richard Hell and, and all these folks, right? It's like, or, and it talks about, um, LL Cool J and, you know, and the hip hop movement and everything. It's like you're reading. It's like I'm like, yes, I can get into this. But um, it's a it's a it's a great book. That I mean, again, I, I picked it up about three years ago, and it still stands up. And it really talks to exactly the point you're making there. Yeah, and and just by even you know, I get, I've been hearing that oh, uh, the knock on Amazon instance linking to Prime has been oh, it's only five thousand titles. You know, that's just not very much. Can't compete with Netflix or. Hulu or other things that are out there, but those 5,000 titles are like a gateway drug. You know, once you know that, um, oh, what is it? Uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop is one of the things, and I highly recommend that for listeners of this show. It's a documentary film about the um, street art movement, and uh, it is one of the 5,000 titles that I probably never would have um, watched if I hadn't just stumbled on it there in the new services that are available. And as uh, one of the subjects of the film, uh, his name is Banksy, uh, I guess a <laughs> world famous um, street artist. And one of the points he's, he makes is they operate in a bit of a legal gray area. Uh, so if uh, you're interested in that sort of um, counterculture uh, and how... Um, they manage to to do what they do. Um, it's a great, great movie, and and again, it's one of the five thousand. But you know, for folks who are just trying it out and getting a taste of it that way, you know, you might watch that and then figure out that oh, over here on the paid side of the equation, where it's more like the um, cable and satellite pay per view model, where you 
pay $4.99 for a movie. There's, um, you know, a huge variety of stuff as well. So they're going to get people not only that are paying the Amazon Prime subscription, which is no small amount, $80 a year, um, and also people who are going to pay by the chunk as well. So, um, you know, I think it's a business model that uh, will go far and that combats um, exactly what you were saying, Phil, and this uh, the pirate's dilemma kind of issues. Um, real quick before uh, we move on, uh, Evan, any thoughts on uh, business models and copyright and piracy? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot. I guess the one point I would make on all this is that there's probably more to do with economics than there is law when it comes all to all of this stuff. And the smart business mm-hmm. person will look at this, look at these questions as economic questions, with law merely providing the backdrop uh, for them. That's what I would take, especially in this whole uh, thesis of the the pirates' dilemma that you're talking about, Phil. With you know them doing the hard work, recognizing it as a supply and demand issue, and then just figuring out how the legal framework should support where the real business is done in terms of dollars and cents and supply and demand. So Jay, a few years back when I was um, still with a big firm, one of the uh, big things our IT department had to uh, keep up with was the fact that people were watching, um, were, were using the the organization's network for illegal activities like file sharing and uh um, peer-to-peer and otherwise um, engaging in privacy using the company resources. Is that something that has come up for you or in the era of streaming and with the fade of P2P, uh, is, is that just not no longer a concern? Well, we take a pretty significant approach to P2P and things mm-hmm. like that. Any any illegal file sharing or anything like that is just it's just not something that's condoned or even supported. We find anything like that on a machine, we remove it almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Not to say that BitTorrent and those type of utilities are all for those type of purposes. We kind of know what they're used for. I mean, right. as far as streaming, we've kind of gone the other way. During uh, President Obama's inauguration, we set up basically in the auditorium, the stream of the inauguration and just had everyone go in there because we kind of knew they were going to be at their desktops doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why, why use all your network resources? <laughs> just put it in a centralized location. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, we don't really see too much of that. I mean, we had had a couple, uh, I don't, I don't want to say takedown notices from the RIAA, but basically... You know, we found some stuff on an IP of yours. Can you mm-hmm. take care of that, please? Right. Um, so have you had instances of people who needed to be legitimately using uh, BitTorrent or other um, P2P software who needed to come to you and say, hey, you know, don't block me because I need to use this for work? A couple times, yes. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. All right, so uh, we're getting down to the time of our tip and resource of the week. Our resource of the week uh, comes our way via J.D. Lassica, a uh, friend of mine and a former guest on Twill. Um, J.D. attended the launch conference, which I would very much have liked to go to, but uh, had to be in Southern California. Actually, maybe I was in Utah at the time. Uh, But there at uh, launch, he saw the company Law Pivot and was impressed by it and sent it my way. It's uh, worth checking out. It's at lawpivot.com. And uh, we've been talking about the legal concerns for companies a lot on this show. 
This is crowdsourced and confidential legal advice for companies. Um, so what you do is you uh, send a confidential question into LawPivot. They identify the right lawyers for your question. And then you receive multiple answers from lawyers, saving money and time. So I assume that they're going to have to build up a network of lawyers who will answer questions for folks submitting here. Um, I think it's a, a neat idea and uh, it's worth checking out as a resource of the week. I can think of some issues with it though. Um, and one of them, Phil, has to do with uh, your post about Cora that uh, you were you were not real thrilled with your experience there and uh, have sort of decided to stop participating there because you felt like you couldn't really give 100% great answers to the discussions and the time that was necessary. And I could see that being a kind of a problem for this sort of community as well. Do you agree? I do. I do, especially if it's, you know, like I said in the post, you don't have to be an expert on something to have uh, an opinion on something. Uh, here I am on a show called This Week in Law, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but um, you know, I, I guess my my frustration with Cora is that you know I find that the social media tools that I enjoy the most are the ones that can be um, can be used in a single motion based on the other activity that I have online, right? And uh, I guess my issue with Cora was it you know it 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 seems to demand a certain amount of attention. And I, and I guess part of the frustrating thing was, you know, a lot of the answers were, you know, well, I'm not an expert on this topic, but, and it seems to me that, that participating in Quora sort of presupposes expertise, right. In, in, a, in, you know, whatever field you're, you're, you're contributing to. So, you know, I, 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 I found myself really, really participating like, you know, for the first two weeks I was exposed to it. And then I kind of realized it's like, you know, is this, you know, it's part of my job to be familiar with these tools. And so I was like, is this really the best use of, of, of my time? And um, I guess what I came away with it, how I came away with it was, you know, um, if I were to uh, make a recommendation to a client, I, I, I could see how something like Quora would be interesting if... I was maybe trying to advise a client to develop a cult of personality around like a rock star engineer and maybe um, was looking to, um, you know, you know, hire young engineering talent that they would bring under this rock star engineer. Maybe Quora would be a good place to sort of develop that relationship. Um, you know, so I was thinking of, 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 you know, things like that, I guess, from a recruiting standpoint, um, or, or maybe even to some degree, a customer service standpoint. But for me, in, in terms of, you know, my, uh, my job as a, as a, as a PR person, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't find a lot of value in it for me. And I guess part of it was that, um, you know, as, as I also said in the post is that, you know, when, when you talk to certain experts, you know, that, that expertise has a certain value and, um, you know, and it's, I'm sure the, the, um, the, the legal advice and content on this show is perhaps much different and not in as much depth as the legal counsel and advice you give when a paying, um, um, uh, when a when a when a pay when a paid arrangement is 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 sort of built right so um, you know I found myself going in there and saying okay I'm going to participate and then I, then I was I found myself saying like sort of okay answers to okay questions <laughs> you know <laughs> and then after a while I just after a while, it just sort of died off and and so you know I, I pop in there every so often just to kind of keep familiar with that certain platform because it it. 
you know, I may have the chance to, to, I may have, it may um, present itself as something that I would want to recommend at some point, but I guess for right now, I, I in, in terms of um, being sort of that, um, that online hub of, you know, uh, high level expertise, it, it just wasn't that for me. And, and I wasn't, I guess, you know, willing to put in the energy to help make the PR tag, you know, live up to that standard. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, that's the kind of a danger that kind of online community can suffer from. Um, Evan, as you look at this law pivot, do you think that um, our fellow colleagues in the legal profession are are quaking in their boots thinking, oh, these people are stealing our legal work? Or do you think that um, lawyers will just look at it as another form of lead generation? You might answer a couple of questions and then get into a more in-depth representation that's actually compensated. Uh, yeah, those are those are at least a couple of different ways of looking at it. One, quaking in your boots, looking at it mm-hmm. also as lead generation. And the other just might be more of a, a public service for the same reasons that lawyers have for 15, 20 years contributed to forum boards, you know, answering questions mm-hmm. or my, why you might answer a question on LinkedIn or even to a certain extent why you might you know, write a blog. I mean, Mm -hmm. my motivations for writing a blog are certainly different than that. I find it just, you know, very satisfying in and of itself to, to analyze this stuff and to share it and, and all of that stuff. And the fact that it may generate a lead for me with a prospective client or a speaking engagement or a media appearance or something like that is just kind of a nice side effect of all of this stuff. So, so I, you know, I certainly am not quaking in my boots. And I don't think a reasonable uh, response from, you know, from lawyers should be to quake in their boots uh, like that. Because regardless of how much information is out there and how many different tools there are, like Law Pivot, which is particularly geared to um, the the law, or, you know, Quora, which has, you know, a lot of questions being asked and answered about the law, nothing, uh, I'll venture to say that nothing will ever replace that attorney-client relationship and the uh, importance importance of that and the things that can only truly be accomplished with any level of quality in that type of relationship. And there's also a certain, you know, good thing that that's mutually beneficial having something like Law Pivot or Quora there. You know, th- it's great to have all these things, th- these places where the simple questions can be asked and answered. It's like, it's not going to do me any good from, a, you know, from, from my bottom line to have a client call me up and ask me a simple question that I can't in good context really uh, charge them for, like a simple question like, what should a copyright notice say? You know, uh, should I use a TM mm-hmm. or a circle right, R? You know, right. that, uh, that's an easy question that can go, uh, um, you know, that, that's good for something like this. But if somebody is looking for the answer of, you know, um, you know what should I do now that I have been sued in federal court for, um, you know, seven different causes of action and the FBI is on my trail? <laughs> You know, I don't think Law Pivot's going to have much of a of a purpose there, and it wouldn't provide a threat uh, to, to to all of that. One more point, uh, you know, with Quora and 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 stuff and, and these types of things, you know, my fantasy, I guess, would be to be retired someday on an island in the Caribbean with an iPad and just kind of hang out there all day mm-hmm. answering questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think of this a lot uh, the same way that I participate as an author on Wikipedia. I am drawn to those subject matters that are not within my professional expertise, but the things that I just happen to know about through circumstance or something I'm interested in as a hobby. You know, the articles that I've edited on Wikipedia are about, you know, little towns and, you know, close to where I grew up, just little, little things like that, things that are just more kind of interesting from a, 
from a um, a knowledge kind of knickknack perspective, you know, I don't I, I don't find as much satisfaction in that type of participation. You know, answering questions about copyright and privacy and trademarks and all that stuff. But you know, maybe if I were retired and and didn't have people ask, you know, willing to pay me money to answer those questions anyway, I would find that more satisfying. <laughs> exactly. Um, Jay, any thoughts on, on this sort of a crowdsourcing of services that would otherwise be offered in-house? I think uh, CORE is very interesting, but the first thing that I saw in it was the opportunity to become a free consultant. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I would mind helping people or giving basic answers to, to things like that, but the opportunity to kind of get yourself involved in a situation where you're providing more information than you would probably want to or need to is is more apparent like i would be comfortable with telling someone what they needed to do as opposed to exactly how to do it because right. say, for example someone comes with a computer issue and i tell them they need to do this that and the other thing and they wind up losing all of their data now am i responsible because i told them how to proceed so mm-hmm. core is very yeah. interesting but it definitely has that catch words it's nice to look at and maybe i don't want to get that involved with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you're right to be uh, cautious along those lines um hey i got some great news uh, from the studio as we were chatting that our own dr kiki just this morning had her baby she uh, tweeted it tweeted out two hours ago i would like to announce the birth of my son kai addison or nano Today, March 4th at 7.49 a.m., six pounds, two and a half ounces. Congratulations, Kiki. That is awesome, awesome news. Congrats. Uh, Congratulations. Just Diapers great. and pins, now the fun begins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hey, so um, our tip of the week has to do with uh, if you're planning to leak any confidential information from within your organization to, say, someone like Julian Assange, uh, please, 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 by all means, be sure not to be aiding the enemy when you do this. Because if you are doing something that could be construed, construed as aiding the enemy, the federal death penalty could apply. And uh, that is something that's being uh, mulled about this week as far as the WikiLeaks case. Um, We've got uh, the federal death penalty possibly on the table. And there have been a lot of people saying, no, 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 they would never seek that um, against. Now, what was the private's name who did the actual leaking? I had it here in front of me. Bradley Manning. Bradley Manning. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of people come back and say to me, there's no way they would ever seek the death penalty against this guy. It would be political suicide. But at the same time, uh, even though the prosecutors have said they won't do it, um, the military district of Washington commander, Major General Carl R. Horst, is the person who gets to make the final decision on that. He doesn't have to follow the prosecutor's recommendation and uh, he could refer this for trial as a capital offense. Um, so, you know, who knows if that would actually happen. But since we've been talking a lot today on the show about things that go in and out of an organization, whether um, under its various policies and procedures or in flagrant violation of them, you might want to bear in mind that uh, there's some pretty stiff penalties out there that can attach um, so that's our tip of the week. Uh, any thoughts, Evan, about this guy? Do you think uh, they would ever uh, seek the death penalty against him? 
who knows? Stranger things have, have happened. I mean, mm-hmm. look at, you know, the Rosenbergs back in the 50s um, yeah. and Sacco and Vanzetti, whenever, you know. So, I mean, who knows? Um, again, this is I kind of feel this way like I do about the, the criminal copyright infringement stuff. I mean, is mm-hmm. our response supposed to be, oh, my gosh, this is outrageous that they would even think of going after the, the somebody imposing the ultimate sanction on somebody for aiding and abetting an enemy of our of our country? And I'm like, well, hell, yeah, they should if there really is. You know, if somebody's going to disclose information to, um, you know, I it seems like every episode I keep just making this this dramatic Al Qaeda is going to blow up all of our buildings, you know, references. But I mean, if somebody's going to give, you know, some kind of information that will make it likely that Al Qaeda is going to fly into uh, my office building and kill me and and my my coworkers and leave my wife and children without me, well, let's not go there. They might enjoy that. Um, you know, by golly, there should be some. Something in the law that that strings that you know ass hat up and 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 makes him accountable for for having done that. So it's not too hard, as you can tell, for me to work up a little bit of righteous indignation uh, for those extreme situations. Whether or not that's appropriate here is far beyond my poor power to uh, to to um, to tell. But I have little tolerance for just knee jerk reactions, thinking that in every situation this would be a miscarriage of justice to put someone uh, to death for jeopardizing our national security. Whoa, yeah, I, I, uh, I guess I just have a lot more sympathy for the guy. I don't think he knew what he was getting into, and and you know, I mean, maybe he um, he wanted to make a statement or what have you. But uh, gosh, you know, to face the death penalty for for leaking information. Well, and, I mean, I, you're and right. And Stranger I think, things have happened. Uh, yes, Phil. And I think lost in all of this is. Um, what was a private first class doing with access to, you know, this these this treasure trove of cables, right? Yeah, it's I, an IT I, I think that issue. I think that's that's one question that I, I think for some reason it's like we're expected to work up this right this froth of righteous indignation because. I think you know perhaps the government wants us to see past the fact that an incredibly you know low low ranking person within the U.S. military had access to all these cables. Number one, number two, um, you know I, I'm I'm certainly not going to you know debate matters of of capital punishment and the death penalty. But I one of the things that struck me about the cables is that it, it didn't seem like at least the ones that I saw were like really huge national security issues right i mean they, they seem to be rather routine and i mean it, it, it you know it, it would it would, i guess it would be, it would be you know and i know that very often the law is not a matter of degree but um you know to to um reach a judgment of you know what evan called the ultimate sanction based on things mm-hmm. that were you know really inside baseball and, and not really the uh, the the bombshells that I think they were originally um, supposed, rumored, or marketed to be. Um, I think that those are all the questions that people are going to be wrestling with with the uh, uh, with this particular case because you know, I, and 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 it and it kind of and again it kind of surprises me that the uh, the internal information security discussion is not um, you know, has not been really you know thoroughly you know thoroughly explored in in the public space. Yeah, I mm-hmm. totally agree. What do you think, Jay, as an IT specialist? I think uh, PFC Manning was an analyst. 
So he was probably just separating the wheat from the chaff as far as the cables go, since there were so many of them. Mm-hmm. And I also so have you a think feeling he, that the, he probably had complete access to them. And it was his judgment call. It wasn't like he was, you know, accessing secure documents that he otherwise shouldn't have. Right. I think the way that the military implements their access control versus how they do access control on a computer base system, I don't think they're aligned as perfectly as they could be. A lot of times I understand it's neither all or nothing. And since he is at a lower level, he was probably doing a lot of grunt work for people higher up so that they wouldn't have to spend a lot of their time going through information that probably isn't worth them looking at. Um, The Uniform Code of Military Justice is also a different set of rules, if I understand correctly, and it's a lot more harsh. I mean, I remember um, when I was in boot camp, the big thing for that was if you were to desert in a time of war, that there was a death penalty offense they could wage that against you. Mm-hmm. And that I don't think that's ever happened, but it was still the, the certain thing. The right. the government, I think, I think, I, I personally think that he was looking for a headline, and uh, he definitely found it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. his <laughs> his bad yep. luck, and continues to find them. All right. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up this episode of this week in law. Really enjoyed chatting with you all today. Thanks so much for joining us, Phil Gomes from Edelman. Thank you. Phil, where can folks find you? And uh, is there anything you'd like to plug before we uh, sign off today? Um, sure. Uh, I am the most Googleable Phil Gomes of the Phil Gomeses that are out there. <laughs> and there are, a few, there are a few. I've gotten threats over uh, my philgomes.com domain name. I mean, while we're talking about matters of identity and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's anything I'm going to plug, actually, um, yes. Um, if there are any listeners here... Uh, in the Chicagoland area who are passionate about technology and open source and the freedom to innovate. Um, you know, I volunteer for a, uh, an organization called uh, Flourish, which is uh, the University of Illinois Chicago's annual um, uh, conference on open source. And it's our fifth year doing it. Uh, my wife and I volunteer. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of really great talks this time around. We've got the VP of technology from Threadless. Uh, we've got the... Um, uh, one of the people from the Document Foundation talking about LibreOffice. We've got um, uh, Ryan Gordon, who goes by Iculus, and he uh, talks about 3D, uh, 3D gaming on Linux. And uh, for uh, law folks on here, um, Dahlia Saper of Saper Law is going to talk about um, open source copyright and patents. So uh, in our fifth year, we've gone from one to three days, um, and it's, uh, it's going to be uh, quite cool. It's April 1st through 3rd uh, at the uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, 750 South Halstead Street. Fabulous. Thanks so much for that. And folks can follow Thank Phil. You. At he's at Phil Gomes on Twitter. I am at Phil at Phil Gomes. All, all the ways to contact me you can find at philgomes.com. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Phil. Great chatting with you. Likewise. And Jay, I really appreciate your jumping in and volunteering to come on the show. It was a real thrill to have you, and uh, we've loved having your perspectives from the inside. Uh, anything you would like to uh, mention as we close? 
Uh, sure. Thank you uh, very much for having me. This was great. I've, I've never done anything like this before. I've done video Skype with people around the world, but not to a you know a very large audience. I'm pretty simple. Uh, I'm my biggest place online is Twitter at JScript. That's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my flavors.me page. Yes, I keep it pretty have, simple. Yes, an adorable daughter and uh, links to all the other um, stuff that you do online. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Evan, great to chat with you as always. Uh, anything on your mind this week? No, no, I've already exhausted it. I don't. I, right. I can't think of anything more to say, but uh, thanks a lot for, for having me. This is a fun com- uh, conversation. I think it was a real interesting composition of our, of our panel today. So uh, I don't know about you, but I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Great to talk with you, Phil. Great to talk with you, Jason. Uh, hope we can stay in touch. Yeah, yeah likewise. I, uh, Denise, thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. I, uh, I had a great time. This was, uh, this was awesome. Sure. It's always fun for us. So I'm really thrilled that you were able to make it happen with us. And uh, folks, be sure and follow Evan online too. He is Internet Cases on Twitter and internetcases.com is his excellent blog. So I will see you hopefully next week. We record live every Friday at 11 o'clock Pacific time at live.twit.tv. And in the meantime, go over and check out our Facebook page where we put up free show questions. Love to get your feedback there at facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw. And with that, we'll sign off and see you next week. Take care.